So I'm going to talk tonight about the topic of courage, of courage. And how do we have courage in our practice, in our teaching and facilitating, and courage in our lives? How do we live a life of courage? And I'm dedicating this talk to my teacher, or one of my teachers, Sayadaw Pandita. I've talked about him, the venerable Sayadaw Pandita, who passed away a few months ago, who probably taught me most of what I know about courage. And I had to learn a lot as well in order to work with some of the things he taught me about courage. <laughs> so I just want to dedicate it, and I want to share some about his life and the stories um, that I experienced with him as I tell you this, the, as I give this talk tonight. And so it's courage, as I said, courage in our practice, courage as we are stepping into the role of facilitator, and courage to live a life in the world of fearlessness, becoming who we want to be in this world. A lot of us don't feel like we have courage, or that courage is something that other people have, but not me, or that... um, If we have it, it's a little bit shaky or on shaky ground. And I just want to dispel some of the myths of what courage is. Another big one is, uh, if I'm scared, I'm not courageous. So we'll look at all of these as we go on tonight. But we'll start with courage in our practice, since that's what we're doing here, and this is the foundation of everything we're doing. There's a word in the Buddhist language, um, in the... In, the, in Pali, it's called, and uh, the word is virya, V-I-R-I-Y-A. And it is translated often as effort or energy. It's sometimes translated as strength, as vigor, as vitality, as perseverance. And it can also be translated as courage, Now, the thing I like about the word courage is it's connected to the Latin word for heart. So there's, if you know French, there's cur in courage, which is heart. And so we can think of it as a strength of heart and a strength that's that's part, that's an essential piece of what it takes to do this practice. What you're doing here takes a tremendous amount of courage. And so this quality of virya is cultivated through practice. And it's an energy and it's a capacity for activity and power and to act and to do or to accomplish. So in the classical Buddhist teachings, it's often seen as one of the five, what's called sometimes spiritual faculties. It's looked as five, as one of the qualities of an enlightened mind. It's, it's, it's a very, very important quality, this quality of virya, which usually, as I said, is translated as effort or energy, but it also can be, um, can be translated as courage. 
Now, the important thing about virya is sometimes I think when we get the idea about courage, it's like, I have to be really strong and powerful and courageous. But it's actually about our ability to skillfully modulate and cultivate the energy in our practice and ultimately in our lives. So it's not just about some hardcore, I'm going to be strong, I'm going to be courageous, but it's how we work with it that's the most important thing. And it's not about being courageous just for the heck of being courageous. It's not what it's about. Virya, or let's just say courage in general, is in the service of something. We are courageous in the service of becoming the best facilitator we can be. We are courageous in the service of deepening our practice and going as profoundly and thoroughly into our practice as we can in the service of strengthening and upholding the beautiful qualities of our heart and mind, in the service of our vision for life, in the service of our goals, in the service of our work and the world, and in our ability to transform the world and make the world be a place that we want to live in and we want our children to grow up in. So it's courage for the sake of, generally, and if we can see it that way, it helps to, to uh, it just helps. It helps to motivate, and it, it it's it's the place where the the intention behind which the courage arises that's so important. So I met Sayadaw Upandita in 1991. I think he had come to the states in 1986. He was a monk. He had been a monk for well, let's see, he had been a monk for. Well, he went into the monastery when he was seven years old, and he passed away uh, just a few months ago at the age of 94. So you do the math, that made him like 80-something years as a monk. He was an extremely um, powerful, powerful man. When you met him, he was imposing. He had the energy of, it's just I know at least a few people in here have known him or met him, and he was, he was something else. I don't know how to talk. Even into his 80s and 90s, he still had this intensity and this power. He was in some ways an embodiment of this quality of virya, this quality of virya. And I wanted to stay, say the date of his death, which was um, the April 16th, 2016, so just a few months ago. He was a complicated person, I would say. He wasn't the warmest, most uh, loving, soft, mushy-gushy guy at all. He was kind of the opposite of that. He had the warrior spirit. It was very intense what he brought. And he didn't suffer fools gladly. So in other words... He didn't have a lot of patience. If you, were, if you were coming to him and you were feeling kind of, oh, I'm not doing so well, a little pity party, he'd just be like, okay, see you later, goodbye. <laughs> he wasn't interested. He, he, just, he had one thing on his mind, and that was that you practice. And you practice with tremendous dedication and with this warrior spirit that he absolutely embodied. So because of that, he didn't, if you were looking for a loving sort of mother archetype, he was the opposite of that. Some of people, my, some of my colleagues used to say that he had Stone Age psychology. 
<laughs> in other words, don't go in there with a problem like, oh, I'm feeling bad about something that happened. No, no, no. He didn't handle that kind of thing. But he was an absolute master in understanding meditation and conveying it. And he brought, he, he, he was in some ways a kind of missionary, in a sense almost, like bringing mindfulness to the West because he thought anybody could do it, anybody could practice. He didn't care, you didn't have to be a Buddhist. And in a way it was like a precursor of what the mindfulness movement has become because he thought anybody could practice. No matter what your background, no matter what your religion, he just, he, he, anyone who showed up at his monastery or the places that he taught, he would say, great, go, um, here, I'll teach you this practice. He was very open. It had a very open hand. Um, and so what he did was he inspired this quality of virya, this equality of energy, this warrior quality. He would push us, push the students. And one of the ways he pushed was in, the, in inviting us to be uncompromisingly ethical. Uncompromisingly ethical everything he taught he probably would when i was living in the monastery with him which was you know years later after i met him probably every talk he gave for about 3 months was on ethics and i say oh no not another talk on ethics here we go again okay but it's because he cared about it so much and interestingly enough he was a he was a teacher for aung san suu kyi who many of you know was the leader of the Democratic Party who was imprisoned in Burma, Myanmar for, you know, 20 years. And he was her teacher. He would go to his house, her house and he would teach her and was um, a huge source of support for her during, her during her house arrest. So he taught us to be ethical. He encouraged us to sit for longer and longer hours. So we often would say you need to be sleeping four hours a night. Have you been sleeping four hours a night here? I'm just curious. <laughs> and we would try because we really believed that this was important and that every moment had to be mindful. He, he, just, he would ask you questions to see if you had been mindful. Were you mindful when you bowed to him? Were you mindful when you opened the door? That's all he cared about was being mindful. It's extraordinary to meet a person like that, that the only thing that is important to them is that people are mindful in the service of freedom, in the service of greater and greater freedom. And so what he would, he would encourage you to sit with your pain and that sometimes that pain is so, even though the pain is so intense, you can be mindful in the middle of the pain so it wasn't a nuanced understanding that we're sort of presenting to you. Here we go a little bit away from the pain and then into the pain, away from the pain. No, it was you sit with your pain. And to sit with the desire, the longing, the fear. Can, did you note it? That was his famous line. Did you note it? And so I pass this on to you right now because the way he presented it was in some ways not nuanced, was not, in my mind, emotionally astute, was not infused with a kind of, how do I describe? It wasn't that he wasn't compassionate, but it was a fierce compassion. But it wasn't like a, hey, take a break, relax, go take a nap, you know, much in the way that we teach here. Maybe we're slackers, I don't know. But, <laughs> but, but 
I want to pass on to you that idea that he passed on to all of us, which is that practicing, practice like your hair was on fire. That's what he would say. That you sit and you are mindful of every breath. That you bring this focused attention into the rising and falling and seeing that no breath is like another breath. When your attention wanders, you bring it back. And when you wake up, from the moment you wake up to the moment you go to sleep, you are practicing. There is no time in his mind, no time to waste. We practice and practice because we can reach freedom in this very life which was the name of a book that, that, of his talks, his lectures. In this very life, we can be free. And so I encourage you, we have only one more day, really, of practice, about a day and a half. And so it might be interesting to explore, is there a way that I could increase my perseverance, my energy, put in a little more effort and see what happens? What happens if I don't go to bed? I think I'm exhausted, but maybe I'll just stay up another half an hour and practice and see what happens. I'm going to give myself a challenge that I'm going to be mindful from the moment I wake up till the moment I get to breakfast. And then in breakfast, through the entire time, I'm going to note everything, be aware of every arising thing. And then all of my walking, when, even when I'm not doing walking meditation, I'm going to be practicing feeling my body, feeling the sensations, being as present as I can. This was the invitation. I mean, I got into it, <laughs> just so you know. I got really into it. I was so inspired. And I would do things that, you know, in retrospect, I look back and I say, oh, that was pushing it. But, like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to meditate sitting up, even though I'm exhausted, and I'm going to sit there until I pass out. I was driven, I admit, I was driven. But I was inspired. And I was inspired by the vision of liberation. And for him, his description, what he would talk about, what a liberation was, a free mind, a mind that is not ah, afflicted by greed, by hatred, by confusion. Imagine having a mind that is entirely free from these things that all of us struggle with all the time. So it's this beautiful vision, and that's what, so it was in the service of this vision. And so we, we worked at it. We worked at it. And I know, so I later on went to the monastery to be with him and practice there in kind of the late 90s and entered mindfulness boot camp. You know, every day of practicing in this way. And I look back on it and I say, wow, I was really drawn to this very hardcore practice. I didn't have to go, I didn't have to do that practice. But I did, I was. And I think it kind of played into my own tendencies to want to really succeed and get an A in meditation. That was my goal. I had a lot of perfectionist tendencies. And if I could just do it the hardest way possible in the monastery, in the way in which it had been done for thousands of years, then I would be, I don't know, perfect or something. So what happens with virya, with the energy of effort, is that it builds more energy. 
So as you practice and as you put more energy into being strong and powerful in your practice and really being there, it inspires more courage. So the more courageous you are, the more courageous you become. And this is very interesting. And it's... it, the quality of courage is it's inspired by challenges. Like you see that you can do it, that you can step forward and you do it and you sit for a longer period of time or you sit without moving or you are mindful for an hour and a half straight or you go through the walking meditation and you don't go down to tea and you actually do the walking meditation or whatever it is that inspires you and you see that you can do it. And you know that this is how this works in life. When you're scared to do something and you do it and you see that you can do it, then you know you can do it again. And that's the amazing thing. So, so the more we do it, the stronger we get. The stronger we get. And we put up with the challenges and the difficulties because that's what you're doing here. You're putting up with being cut off from your family in a sense, right? Or you know, you're not going on vacation, you're, you're putting up with uh, no stimulation and no TV and you don't get to see the next episode of your favorite Netflix binge series or whatever it is. You have to be here and you're doing it because you know that this is powerful and important and meaningful. So it's your courage is inspired by what you're doing it for. Because the depth of practice that can occur when we come on a meditation retreat is so profound. And this is what I saw. You know, I had to put up with a lot of things in the monastery. I went there after practicing with, with the Sayadaw for about, I don't know, eight years or something. I went to Burma and I lived in the monastery there and I ordained. I shaved my head and got rid of all my... Um, stuff and I put it into storage I didn't actually <laughs> I didn't actually get rid of it um, but I, I and I committed to certain ethical trainings including not eating after 12 noon and that was the that was the way it was done there and uh, not sleeping on high and luxurious beds which didn't matter because they basically gave you a concrete slab and a mat and no singing and no dancing. That was one of the agreements you make as a nun. And it's very, very uh, intense. And then I was, it, it, was in, it was in the jungle, kind of like a foresty, jungly area. So there were snakes and spiders and scorpions and big scorpions and big spiders. Like, <laughs> I'm not kidding. <laughs> there was a spider I saw once that, like the size of a dinner plate. And its body was like the size of a hand. I mean, it was freaky, right? <laughs> and um, and the weather was just, uh, it was just hot. I mean, it's half the time I felt like I was meditating in a sauna. And I didn't like the food. And I got, I, I got sick all the time. And I was, I was just, but I did this all because of my vision, because of my connection to the vision that I had, that this would bring me closer to freedom. So we make choices to do things because we know where they're heading. And this is courage, right? We're inspired by something. I had a lot of courage at that time. And sometimes it takes walking through fire to transform. 
whether in our practice or in our life, we sometimes have to sit through the scariest, most intense stuff in our being, internally or externally, for us to know that courage is possible. It's amazing when we can do that. It is amazing when we go through something that we just think, I don't think, I didn't know how I made it through this. But I did. I made it through this. And now I have courage. So I made it through this time in the monastery, but I'm going to go back to how I made it through because I didn't make it through in the end with effort, effort, effort. I'm strong. I'm a warrior. That's how I thought I had to make it through, but actually I didn't. One of the things I often talk to my daughter about, because my daughter has a lot of, um, she gets anxious about things. That's kind of her tendency. And she's, she's seven, almost, no, she's not. She's six and three quarters, excuse me. And, um, and we talk about the edge of what feels safe and what doesn't feel safe. And so this is kind of, many of you know this concept, but there's the, there's the safety zone, which is when we're in our comfort zone. And then over here is the is the what I call it to her the scary zone, and then somewhere in between is what we call the grow zone. <laughs> okay, the safety zone is doing things that we're comfortable with. This, so for my daughter, the safe zone is when she goes to school and all her favorite teachers are there and her friends are there and everything feels safe and comfortable. She's with her best friend. The scary zone is when it's too far out of our realm of, of what we can handle. When we start to become overwhelmed, or, you know, Mark was talking about how do we handle like, this overwhelm. Like, so for my daughter, that's when one day we went to school and she has two teachers and both of them weren't there. And that was just beyond her ability to handle it. But the grow zone is where we're pushed a little bit but we're not pushed into overwhelm, right? We're pushed, but not too far. And in that place, there is an opportunity for growth. So we call it the grow zone. And for her, that was the day one teacher was there, but the other teacher wasn't, you know? And we play with this because I want to teach my daughter. It's, it's a funny balance. Like, like partially I'm teaching her to really respect her limits and listen to her body. And when you're scared, and me as a parent, to respect her fears and not try to push her too much. But I also want to teach her that she is brave, that inside her are incredible resources of strength. But I don't want to push her into something before she's ready. So I'm always kind of looking at that. And I'm telling you this because it's not just little kids that we do this with. It's with people we work with. And it's with us. When do we step? How can we find ourselves in the grow zone? Away from the scary and the safe, but in the grow zone. And, um, and so having that capacity to have strength, that virya, that that warrior energy. But to me, what it requires is compassion. Compassion for ourself, an incredible attunement to our inner being. So we what what happened when I was in Burma was I pushed myself into the overwhelm zone, into the scary zone, because I thought that's what I had to do in order to achieve my goals. So I was being courageous, but it was kind of a, I don't know, it wasn't like a false courage, but it was a, it was a distorted courage. 
It was a courage that wasn't tuned into my inner being. And so what happened was I pushed myself and pushed myself and pushed myself and I was sleeping four hours a night and I was working hard and I was getting concentrated and I was beating the heck out of myself emotionally when I couldn't be, when I wasn't being up to the par. Oh no, I slept five hours a night. That's terrible. And I would, every time I wasn't mindful, it became an opportunity to beat myself up and it was very, very intense. And I have to say this was happening I wasn't getting a lot of great guidance from the teachers who didn't really understand, in my view, kind of the nuances of this and of my psyche. And I didn't know how to stop this. And I didn't know how to, I just, I just, all I knew how to do was push. And what happened was, well, basically, I kind of fell apart. Because if you push too much, you know, there's ultimately nothing left to push, you know, you just, it's just, it it was like I was running, I was sprinting in something that should have been a marathon. And then I started experiencing all these difficult states of mind. So at first there was tremendous concentration and ease and sense of, of connection and my mindfulness was strong and I was experiencing all sorts of beautiful states of mind And then when I started to get to this place where I pushed myself too much without the compassion, I started to fall apart. And then I remember just thinking, oh, I'm done. I got to leave here. This meditation stuff, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. And um, (laughs) I thought, all right, I'm going to Thailand to go to the beaches. That's the solution. Get out of here. This is awful. And I remember that I made the decision, I'm going to leave. And I went to, he, he, he had been gone and back and forth. He wasn't, Sayadaw Pandita had been, not been there and he was there. And I went to him and I said, I can't take it anymore. It's too hard for me. I've lost my ability. I've lost my capacity. I'm going to Thailand. And he said, okay, leave. <laughs> That's what he said. First he said that. He said, okay, leave. <laughs> That's what he said. And then he said, but if you do, the afflictions, the, the well, there was a specific word he used, but the afflictions, the, the fear and the grief and the anxiety, all of that, it will always be with you. But if you stay, you have a chance to cultivate an ability to be present even in the midst of those things. And I just, I remember going back and saying, uh, you know, it was just, it was, a, it was a hard thing to process, but I, I got it. I got it that I had a choice and that I was going to stay. But when I stayed, I had to do it very differently. I had to do it. I couldn't do that warrior practice. I was done with the warrior practice. So I started to do a practice that I said, from now on, everything I do in this practice is about love. Everything is going to be about love. I'm going to listen to myself and see where I need to bring love to myself. And that's what I began to practice. And a lot of compassion practice, sending compassion and compassion to myself for the ways that I thought I had failed, to the ways that I had lost my vision, to the ways that I thought I was no longer courageous. And... I began to balance the courage with love, with love. 
and compassion and everything began to change. And soon I started to have the same kind of power and courage that I had, but it was rooted in self-love instead of self-loathing. Because the realization that I had was all of that drivenness, all of that drivenness. Yes, it had some very powerful and important spiritual goal, but it was also a lot driven by the sense of maybe not liking myself so much. You know, like if I could be perfect, if I could reach enlightenment, if I could get completely free heart and mind, then then I'd be perfect. Then people would love me. Then I wouldn't be mean sometimes or crabby or fight with my brother. Or, you know, then I would be perfect. But once I realized that it wasn't about getting outside myself and it was actually about being inside myself that mattered, that trusting that who I was exactly as I am was absolutely fine and actually better than fine. Like that was it. That was all I had to do. It was the courage to be myself, the courage to be myself and to love this, this imperfect, this perfectly imperfect person who I am. So then, you know, then I stayed. And then after a while, I kind of maxed out. After about a year, I thought, it's time to go home. It's time to, I'm done here. But um, later, when I came back, I was being, started being asked to teach. It was then about 10, 12 years into my practice, I started being asked to teach. And I just want to say a little bit about what it means to bring courage into teaching. I know that you um, you worked you talked today about the inner critic and that voice that's with so many of us as we teach and how we can use that as our practice. How being aware of the critic is a practice and it's so important. And I know when I first started teaching, I had a lot of that critical voice. Am I doing it right? Am I good enough? Am I you know all of that stuff? And um, and then ultimately, it just became part of the territory. Oh, okay, there's the inner critic. Hi, inner critic. I'm going to do it anyway. Face the fear, but do it anyway. There's probably about 10 books with that title, right? It's, but, but it's really real. It's like, it's like you're going to be scared. It's, it is scary, and it always is scary in different ways. And most of the time for me, you know, it, like, because I've been teaching now like, almost you know, 20 years or something, it was, it's not so scary, but there are times when it's scary for me. Like when I enter in a new territory, and it's something that I've never done before. And I just know that that's part of the practice, that I work with my fear and I step into it and I get the support that I need and I remember to love and forgive myself wherever I am. As you start facilitating or continue facilitating, you're going to be doing things like getting lots of questions. Should I develop this curriculum what if this curriculum, this is a new curriculum. No one's ever done this before. Is it right? Is it okay? I don't know if I'm the one who should be doing this. And I just want to say that every curriculum that was ever developed began with just somebody getting an idea and doing it. Right? So if you, if you, 
then they pilot it and they practice it and they teach it and they see what happens and they get feedback and they move forward. And this is what happens all the time. We can, we can, there's not like an imaginary perfect curriculum that you're going to design and that it's going to like pop out of the air and suddenly become it. You've got to try it out. You, it's the courage to experiment, to innovate. And there's always a, there's always a, a tension between tradition and innovation. How much do I stay absolutely aligned to everything my teacher taught me? And how much do I bring in creativity? And this is a line that everybody has to walk when facilitating mindfulness. And my hope is that you give permission to be creative, to create forms, whether it's curriculum or classes or meditations and so forth, that are an expression of you for the populations that you know and work with because you're, you're the best suited to work with the population that you're working with. And that you... Um, and so that you... that. But at the same time, you stay aligned with the form so that you're not inventing things from outer space, but that there's a connection to the tradition. So it's an interesting balance of walking this tradition and innovation. How do we do both? And some people will veer more on the, on the end of tradition. They'll really stick with what they've known and what they've been taught, and others will be more creative and... Not, sorry, it's not to say that the traditionalists are not creative, but more innovative or try new things. And you're going to find where you fit in there. And just, I just encourage you to be conscious about that. You can't go beyond form until you know form. Okay? You can't go beyond form until you know form. You've got to know it in your bones. You've got to know this practice. And then once you've got the practice, then it's going to come out of you in all sorts of um, in incredible ways that I can't foresee, that none of us can foresee. And it's just it's extraordinary to watch that process. Sometimes you just have to do it. You just do it. I can't do it. I can't. T- I've never done this particular thing before. It doesn't matter. Just do it. And then feel your feelings and bring some compassion to yourself and get the support you need and make a call and, you know, do this thing. But you do it. You just do it. Sometimes, um, well, here's, here, if I could turn everything I know about facilitating into three points. I will do that right now. And it's called what I call the three no's. And that's K-N-O-W-S. They're really profound, so you better write this down. Okay. I'm just kidding. The first one is teach what you know. Teach what you know. Teach from your practice. We've been saying that all week. The second is know what you don't know. Okay? Be honest with yourself about your limitations. So teach what you know. So basically it's know what you know and know what you don't know. Of course, sometimes there's things that we don't know we don't know. That's the problem. But (laughs) bracketing that for the moment. And the third is don't be afraid to say, I don't know. So it brings a quality of humility to our teaching that we're really teaching from our experience. You can teach from your experience. But you have to be aware that that you do have limitations. Everybody has limitations. 
But we step, we, we keep growing and we learn where we have to grow and then we get training in certain areas or we do more practice and we're continually building our repertoire, repertoire and creating more and more capacity to teach. So how about courage in our lives? How about courage in our lives How can we live a life of courage? And part of it is taking all of the principles that we're learning here and just applying it out in life. How to be be mindful, how to be compassionate, how to be forgiving, how to practice gratitude, how to be immensely kind with ourselves, how to work with fear when we're even in the midst of fear and to move through the fear. I want to say this again, that courage is not having no fear. Courage is not having no fear. Courage is precisely the strength of heart in the face of fear. I can't tell you how many times in my life I've been scared, and when I'm in the the grow zone, not in the overwhelm zone, I will step into it. It's courage even in the face of fear, to face our demons, to face the things that we're sitting with internally, to face the things externally that we have to face. And all of us have scary things in our lives that we have to face where we don't always feel brave. Georgia O'Keeffe has that wonderful, wonderful quote, and it says, I've been absolutely terrified every moment of my life, and I've never let it keep me from doing a single thing I wanted to do. Think about it. And think about her accomplishments, right? Extraordinary artist, pioneer, visionary, So sometimes it's easy for us to say, I'm not a courageous person. But if you look at your story of your life, you will see tremendous acts of courage throughout your life. And things that you probably didn't even realize were courageous, you know, but they are, they're courageous acts. You may not perceive it as courage, but it's often helpful to get feedback from someone else who may be able to show you how it's courageous. Because oftentimes we skip over these courageous acts and we just go, oh, yeah, yeah, you know, I wasn't scared to, to skydive. No problem. Sometimes we're courageous in one area but not in another, like a skydiver who's afraid of the dentist or something, right? Or we're very powerful at work but we have difficulties in certain relationships in our family and we're afraid of somebody. Or, you know, we're always a big mix. It's not like anybody is one way. Is, is a scared person or an only courageous person. We're all a big mix of it. What we can do is we can work with the fear. We can work with the fear, and that's what we've been learning here. That's what we've been learning here. When the, you, you are learning to hold the arising sensations with compassion, 
just bring awareness to it. And, you know, we taught you, you can go to someplace that's neutral and you can come back and you can go back and, and feel what's there. You can spend most of your time in what's easy and then occasionally bring it right back to the place and that's fearful and feel the vibrations and the tightness and the constriction and then gently go back. You know, this is all, these are tools that you can use in your daily life. I got really, really scared about something recently and it was keeping me awake. And I just said, okay, I have nothing to do except practice right now. And I sat there for a long time and just felt the fear and was with it and then found my hands and felt my hands and then came back to the fear and sat with it and breathed and brought compassion to myself and just let, and then over time, and it took a long time, this was a really hard thing there was some kind of ease that came. And then a strength that said, okay, I'm going to step forward. I'm going to step forward even with the fear. It didn't fully disappear, but it was, it was with me as I took the action. And the action was courageous. And taking that action made me feel more courageous. And the fear began to dissipate. Having the courage to step into whatever it is in life that we want to do or be and fully be ourselves, fully be ourselves in the world, this is so powerful. This is a quote from Dr. Seuss. He says, Today you are you that is truer than true. There is no one alive who is more you than you. Sometimes it's hard to to kind of figure out, like, who am I in this world? And how do I just fully be myself? And I think the encouragement with this practice, and certainly it was part of my own journey, and that's why I share it with you all, is how do we step into the place of our own power in the world, whether it's facilitating or something else, whether it's your parenting or your career in whatever way or your relationship how do we fully be ourselves without the stories that say i'm not good enough or i can't or i'm not capable it's kind of like looking at ourselves squarely in the face and seeing who we are and being okay with it one of the things that's been so amazing to watch my father who's now he'll be 80 this year and um he doesn't care about anybody. He is. He knows exactly who he is, this guy. He wears um, those black socks with sandals, and it looks so silly, and, he, and silly T-shirts, and he just, he's just himself. And it's, like, it's, such, a, it's such a teaching to me uh, around, around and, and I think, of course, this is something that comes with age that I cannot speak to, but that sense of like, you know, I'm me, I am me, and that's it. And I just want to encourage us all to become ourselves, to not feel that this is not good enough, because this you, who you are, is absolutely good enough. And when I look back at my time in the monastery, this is where I landed. You know, this is where I came to. I... Well, I, I shared some of that, but but but... I had to learn to love myself and let myself express myself as I am. And also know that um, 
that I was going out into the world and I was going to bring these teachings and these teachings maybe weren't exactly the way my teacher taught them, but they were my own expression, right? And I think with him, one of the things that happened with Sayadaw Upandita is I couldn't, again, I'm having a hard time articulating this, but it's, I had to learn to become my best teacher. I had to learn to become my own teacher. He had his way, but I had to find my way in his way. And it's the same with everybody, with teachers. We find the strength and courage within ourselves to listen to our own inner wisdom, but guided by all of the teachings that we learn. And so I think ultimately the journey of the student to becoming a teacher is coming back into oneself and trusting your own inner teacher. And so when I left the monastery, so that was, as I said, kind of like 2000, end of the 90s, and then I left, I was kind of angry at him for a long time. I felt like he didn't help me in the way I wanted him to help me. That there were things that I was frustrated with at the monastery, the kind of... uh, the patriarchal tradition, what it meant to be a woman in the monastic culture, the fact that I didn't feel like I was understood emotionally, things like that. And I went through a lot of years of, um, of being angry, like really angry. And then, um, and then about five years later or more, I don't know, one of my friends said to me, you should write him a letter and tell him, about, uh, write, write what you're grateful for. And I thought, I can't do that. <laughs> but then I thought, all right, I'm going to do it. When, so, when, you, when, you, when someone tells you something and you think I can't do it, it's always a good sign to pay attention to that. <laughs> so I started to write this letter. And basically I wrote the letter for myself. And I wrote down, first I spent about an hour writing why I'm so angry and I, why I couldn't write the letter. So I had to go through all this resistance, and then finally that peeled away, and then I began to write this other letter, and the other letter was, I realized just how tremendously grateful I was to him. That his modeling of courage was so profound, and I, and I, am, I began to embody that in my own way, because I'm not him. I'm someone totally different, different culture, different, you know, everything. I'm, I'm different, but... But not only that, that his, because of him, I learned, I I found the practice. Because of him, I learned how to practice. Because of him, I met some of my best friends in the world. Because of him, we started teaching teenagers to meditate. Because of him, I began teaching. Because of him, I found Well, I believe that his influence is so profound in the mindfulness movement, whether he likes it or not. And he didn't really like it, because years later when I said to him, do you know what you've done in terms of how it's impacted the mindfulness world? He just looked at me and said, he grunted. And he said, Western Dharma. (laughs) Didn't particularly like it. But his, everything is threading through what we do because of his precision and clarity. And he taught so many of my teachers, 
Joseph Goldstein and Sharon Salzberg and that whole generation of teachers taught by him. And he was in the lineage of Mahasi Sayadaw and all these Sayadas back, 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 back. And so you would not be sitting here right now in this way if it weren't for him. I truly believe that. I know now that, um, well, I, 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 I really wanted to give this talk because of his recent death and to share my love for him. And all of the anger and all of that has dissipated long ago. And I just feel like he's, he's with me. He's with all of us. And he was a master. He was a true mindfulness master, no question. And his spirit lives on in all of us. So, thank you. Let's just take a moment. Just a sense how we're feeling and what's happening in our heart, body, mind. And I invite you to think about a time that you were courageous. Remember a time you were courageous. Could have been a really simple thing. Doesn't have to be a big thing. Could have been this week, could have been any time in your life. And as you remember this time, notice how it feels inside you. (coughs) Notice what courage feels like inside you. Warmth, strength, solidity, hardness, softness, openness. Just letting it be here. Just say a few words you can say in your mind. May I open to courage. May I one day open to more and more courage. May I recognize the courage inside me. Notice how that feels. Notice your body.
think that's it for now, and we'll see you in about a half an hour. Thanks. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.